0: Saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. And Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this reading of your sacred word. We come before you, O Lord, as those who require you that, Lord, you teach us and instruct us this morning. Should we understand these things, Lord, we we require your grace. And should we be changed by these things, O Lord, that we we are the same, Lord. Uh, We are before you. We ask, O Lord, that you would shape and mold us in the likeness of Christ, working through your holy word, O Lord, in our lives. By the power and administration and agency of the Holy Spirit, we call on you. To these ends we pray in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Uh, We come to this morning that text that has famously been called the Triumphal Entry. Um, We're skipping ahead just a little bit this morning um, because of Palm Sunday. And this is the text where we we get it, where we're instructed in in what we call Palm Sunday. Um, This is one of the few stories that is told by all four evangelists. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record uh, this story for us. And that alone should alert us of the significance of this story. Uh, There's deep and profound significance to this story, as we're going to see in a few minutes, by God's grace, Now, Jesus and His disciples have been making their way towards Jerusalem. They've been making their way. And in verse 1, we see that they arrive at the Mount of Olives. Uh, These places don't always mean a lot to us. Sometimes we even struggle to pronounce some of these places. Uh, We oftentimes have no idea where they are. Uh, If we were to fly over the city of Jerusalem and we were to look down upon the city... On the east side of the city, we would see a valley. Uh, that is the valley of Kidron. And then uh, uh, just beyond the valley is an, a ridge, if you will, an elevation that is east of the city of Jerusalem. And on that east side of the city is the Mount of Olives. And it is to there. They're just east of the city. Uh, we're told it's a Sabbath day journey. So it's, not, a, it's not, a, not very far, within walking distance. They're on the Mount of, of Olives. And it is here where Jesus gives some instructions to His disciples in verse 2. He tells them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to Me. Now, I don't know if you ever spend any time thinking about some of the assignments that, uh, that the Lord gives to His disciples. I have thought a lot about this assignment over the years. Uh, I think this assignment would be a bit uncomfortable Um, listen fellas here's what I want you to do I want you to go into the village that's right down the road there and uh, you're going to find a a couple of donkeys I want you to untie them and and bring them here will you Uh, if we were to put that in uh, contemporary terms it might go something like this you know uh, uh, Gary uh, you and Anthony um, would you guys go into Hookstown as soon as you go into town you're going to see a little Ford Fusion sitting along the roads you know and uh, it's never been driven. It's brand new. It still has the stickers in the window. It was dropped off by a truck. You'll find that the keys are in the ignition if you'd just be so happy as to uh, uh, bring that vehicle to me. You can see that we're just a little funny about other people's property, you know, unless we're thieves, of course. Uh, but even thieves would sneak around in the night and do this, not in the middle of the day. Uh, so there's, there had to have been a little bit of discomfort here uh, in... in Uh, In verse 3, Jesus says, listen, if anyone says anything to you, well, yeah, (laughs) that would be kind of what's going on in my mind, you know. If anyone says anything to you, just tell them that the Lord needs them. And uh, Luke tells us that as the disciples go into the village and as they find the animals and they begin to untie the animals, the owner of the animal does speak up. Uh, We can only imagine, hey, what are you doing? Uh, And they say, well, um, the Lord needs them. And, of course, they did just as Jesus said. They allowed them to take the animals. Now, there are some scholars and some commentaries, uh, some interpreters that say that Jesus probably had made some uh, earlier arrangements with the owner of these animals. And if that is the case, then uh, when the disciples say, listen, the Lord has need of them, then the owners would have understood, okay, Uh, that, that means Jesus needs these animals. Sure, go ahead and take them. Uh, But if there were no previous arrangements made, then the owner could have easily taken uh, the disciples as saying, listen, the Lord needs them. Uh, The owners could have easily taken that as God the Father needs them. God the Father needs them. Now, I don't raise this point uh, so that uh, we would make a distinction between whether Jesus needed the animals or the Father needed the animals. I don't want to make a distinction there. Actually, I want to do the exact opposite. Jesus needs the animals. Why does Jesus need the animals? Well, we're told in our text, verse 4. There's no mystery as to why this took place. Matthew tells us it took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. God had made a promise. Uh, Jesus needs these animals to fulfill that promise. The Father had made a promise. The Father needs these animals to fulfill that promise. You see, there's no no distinction here. The will of of Jesus and the will of the Father are are the same. They're in complete and perfect harmony. And the application of that is as you and I are molded more and more into the likeness of Christ, uh, our wills will too indeed be made the same as Christ. That's what we pray for every Sunday is that the Lord will work through His Word as we gather here, that changes will take place in our heart, we'll become more and more like Christ. So we're told that Jesus needs the donkeys. They're His donkeys. He's not stealing them. They belong to Him. Uh, He needs the donkeys to fulfill these ancient promises. Uh, Namely, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, The full of a beast of burden. Now these are, by this time, these are already ancient promises. Ancient prophecies. Uh, There's actually two prophecies that are combined together here. The first part is from Isaiah 62, which we read earlier. And the second part is from Zechariah 9.9. I usually don't like to do this, to ask you to flip around in your Bibles, but... I, I, I would ask you just for a moment to keep your finger in, in Matthew 21 and, and return to Isaiah 62. Uh, it's not my intentions really to, to preach so much from Isaiah 62, but there's some background information that I think we need from Isaiah 62 in order to see the import of what's taking place. If you uh, Isaiah 62. But by all means, keep your fingers in Matthew 21. We'll be returning there. And for the sake of context, as we go to Isaiah 62, uh, we should back up to Isaiah 61. Uh, so if you will look at Isaiah 61, and namely the first verse of Isaiah 61, it's a famous passage. Uh, one of the first verses that, that I, I really started to get a handle on in Isaiah was this verse. Uh, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the open of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the, le- the year of the Lord's favor. Now, who is speaking in this prophecy? Uh, this is prophetically speaking the words of the Messiah. We need to see that it's the Messiah who's speaking in this prophecy. And we know this with certainty because Jesus, when he returns to Nazareth during his earthly ministry, when he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, he stands up in the synagogue and the attendant hands him a roll, a scroll of Isaiah, and he opens up the scroll and turns to this passage and he reads the words that I just read. And then he says to the assembly who's gathered there that, That day. He says, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Who is speaking in this passage of Scripture? It's Christ. It's Christ. It's important that we understand that. I want to advance to verse 10 of Isaiah 61 because Christ is speaking here as well. And he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What's going on there? Our, Our clothing says a lot about us. It speaks a lot about our character, and it actually speaks of our commitment. Notice that the illustration that is being used here is of a bride and a groom. Now, here in a couple of months, we have a young couple that is going to be getting married, and on that day, I can guarantee they will not be dressed the way they're dressed right now. Am I correct? <laughs> Jennifer is going to be wearing a beautiful dress. And it's already ready for the occasion. It's ready to go. And Anthony will probably be in a tux, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah I don't mean to draw attention to you, but it's, it's an <laughs> illustration. What does that say? It's speaking of the character, and it's speaking of the commitment that the, ca- the occasion warrants, Right? It's a solemn occasion. It warrants the garments that are being purchased or being rented. And in turn, Christ is clothed, if you will. He is robed with salvation. He is robed with salvation. It's a solemn occasion, and Christ is dressed for it. In verse 11, we're told, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. All of us have had gardens, I presume. We stick the seeds in the ground, but do we make them grow? We set the conditions for growth, but we don't make them grow, do we? Only the Lord can do that. Well, guess what? The one of whom this text is speaking is the one who can make them grow. He's the one who makes them grow. And that brings us to Isaiah 62. And Isaiah 62 has so overwhelmed me this week that I've been so overwhelmed by Isaiah 62. Uh, that I would love to write songs about Isaiah 62. I can't get enough of Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. That's the Messiah speaking. What is he saying? He is saying, I will not rest. I will not cease from activity until my people are robed with righteousness and salvation and it's a visible righteousness it's a visible salvation it's like it goes forth as brightness you can't keep brightness hid can you it goes as a burning torch and if you look at verse 2 the nations are going to see it They're going to see the righteousness of God's people. All of the kings are going to see the glory of God's people. We're going to be named with a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Look at verse 3. You will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This is the church that is being spoken of here. And the church is going to be a crown on the head of the king. Isn't that amazing? If we skip down to verse 6, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. What's going on here is the Lord is going to appoint He's going to call people to pray and to not stop praying until these things actually happen. And we know that uh, up to the first coming of Jesus, there were people who did just that. Luke tells us of a woman who was in the temple. She was widowed for most of her life and she was in the temple and she never, never stopped praying in the temple. These are the watchmen that are being referred to here. They're the guardians, if you will. And they give the Lord no rest. They're also praying. You see, the Messiah will have no rest until this is accomplished. And there are people praying who will give the Lord no rest until this is accomplished. If we look down to verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the people's. You know, we can see this kind of thing. I've shared with you uh, how uh, ancient civilizations used to go before their kings. Servants would go before the king when he traveled. And what they would do is they would clear the pathway of stones and obstacles and what have you so that he had a clear path to his destination. Uh, We still do this today. You've heard me share the story. uh, I was in Pittsburgh one time when the president uh, was in town. And uh, the parkway was clear. There, there were no cars going into town or out of town. The parkway completely blocked off from Pittsburgh Airport all the way to the des- destination downtown where the president was going. That parkway was completely clear. The rest, the rest of the city was an absolute mess. It was an absolute mess. Uh, but the, uh, the parking lot was clear. There's a little editing work for the recording here. <laughs> The the parkway was uh, completely, completely clear. Uh, In the text that we come to here uh, this morning, um, it's the king who's clearing the way for the people. I, I, I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for an earthly king to do this for his people. Earthly kings require their people to serve them. The Messiah has come to serve His people. Sure, He uses the administration of people, but it is indeed He who is clearing the way and making the path clear for His people. If He would have never cleared the path, if He would have never made a way, then there would be no salvation for any of us. And if you've read the book of Acts, you understand that Christianity was called the way at the beginning, wasn't it? After Jesus' words in John chapter 14, I am what? I am the way. And that brings us to verse 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. And here's where our quote is. Say to the daughter of Zion. Those are the words that are quoted in Matthew 21. Say to the daughter of Zion. Behold, your salvation comes. Now, with those thoughts in the back of our minds, let's turn back to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. We see the first part of uh, Isaiah being quoted in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, and then we see the second part of the quote, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the fall of a beast of burden. These verses are coming from Zechariah 9.9. 9. They were understood uh, as being messianic for hundreds of years prior uh, to this event which we're reading about. Now the disciples, uh, they go and they do just as Jesus has directed them. Uh, they go into, town, into this town, they gather the donkey and the colt, They put their cloaks on the colt, who has never been ridden. And Jesus gets on board of the the colt. He he rides the colt, if you will. And in verse 9, we see that there were crowds that go before him, and there were crowds that follow him. Uh, From the Gospel of John, we learn uh, that uh, there were crowds in Jerusalem who heard that Jesus was coming, and they flock up onto the Mount of Olives to see Jesus. And the big stir in town is the raising of Lazarus. That they, they, they heard about the, the raising of Lazarus, if you will. And uh, they're, they're going up on the hillside to see Jesus. And they kind of come up and meet Jesus as Jesus is descending down the Mount of Olives uh, with a crowd following Him and a crowd going before Him. And they're, they're ecstatic. The crowds are completely ecstatic. They're crying out, Hosanna, which means, save us now, we pray, or save us now. They're crying, Hosanna. To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he enters Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred up saying, who is this? They're so ecstatic that they're throwing their coats down on the ground. And they're carrying out palm branches. That's why we call this Palm Sunday. There's palm branches on the back table back there. They're they're tearing these palm branches off and they're throwing them down uh, on the road. They're throwing their coats down on the road. They're proclaiming all of these things as Jesus passes by uh, so let's, let's start putting all this together uh, what is going on on this hillside what's taking place here well the long awaited Messiah is here he's here and he's coming in peace and humility that's the idea of being on the cult that was a common thing uh, in this day and in this time when kings rode these kinds of animals during times of peace. He's coming humbly. He's coming in peace. Now, what do we make of this? What's this? What's this? Uh, what's the lesson in all this for us? There's there's really two angles here this morning that I that I want to look at from these verses. And the the first angle is what these verses teach us about ourselves. And the second angle is what these verses teach us about the Lord. Let's think first about what these verses are teaching us about ourselves. Um, Perhaps the most obvious um, observation of our text is the excitement. So much of this text is is concerned with the excitement of the crowd, we're told that the whole city is stirred up. How often do you see people actually pulling their coats off and throwing them on the ground? We understand they're proclaiming Hosanna. They're using Messianic language towards Jesus, um, most of which is coming from Psalm 118. Uh, Psalm 118 is one of the Hallel Psalms the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, it was a psalm that was sung during Passover, and it is Passover time. Uh, Jesus would have most likely sang Psalm 118 the night He was mar- arrested, right after He had what we call the Lord's Supper uh, with His disciples. They're quoting phrases from Psalm 118. They're ecstatic. Uh, they're flocking to Jesus. Uh, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By today's standards, this is what we would call a great worship experience. A great worship experience. That's the word that's used a lot today. A great worship experience. It's upbeat. It's positive. It's encouraging. There's a huge crowd, it's exciting. what's the true spiritual condition of all this listen really listen really carefully go out to that hillside this morning and listen really carefully it's a little hard to hear because of all of the shouting and all the excitement but listen really carefully if you listen really carefully you know what you'll hear you'll hear somebody weeping. Who could be weeping on an occasion like this? Luke tells us who's weeping. You know who it is? It's Jesus. Why is he weeping? We have such a big crowd. The praise team didn't miss a beat. Everybody's singing in key. They all know the song. It's upbeat, it's positive, it's encouraging. Why is Jesus weeping? Because in just a few days, the same crowd is going to be saying something else. And what is that? They're going to be yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. How? How does this happen? How do we go from being so ecstatic one moment to the opposite extreme in the span of only three or four days? I think the answer largely rests in in the fact of really what's behind the excitement. What is behind the excitement? Well, the crowds are expecting Jesus to come in and deliver them from Rome. The crowds are looking for a worldly deliverance, an earthly deliverance. But after Jesus arrives, they, they quickly come to the conclusion that Jesus didn't come to bring an earthly deliverance. He came to take away the sins of his people. They didn't have any interest in that. I mean... If Jesus could have come in and talked about 10 ways to a better marriage or 5 ways to a more fulfilling relationship or maybe 7 ways to improve your portfolio, He probably could have got a good audience. If He could have come in and fed them like He did out on the hillside, fed the 5,000 or fed the 4,000, if he, if he could have come and done that, I suppose things would have went a little bit differently. If Jesus could have, could have continued on to be a divine genie who's ready to bless or every beck and call will... Um, I suppose this could have all worked out a lot differently. But Jesus came to do something else, didn't He? You see, you start preaching Christ crucified and generally speaking, the crowd will usually thin out on you. Now, I raise this point because I want us to see something. Almost 2,000 years have gone by since this event took place on this hillside. A lot of people will say, what's this old book got to do with me? What's this old book got to do with you? Well, 2,000 years nearly have passed, and you want to know something? Human nature is still exactly the same. The story is timeless, and if another 2,000 years goes by, this is going to be just as relevant to the people 2,000 years from now, and 4,014, than it is today. We haven't changed. We haven't changed. Remember what Isaiah 62, 11, Right. Isaiah 60, 61 said that as the earth sprouts out, you know, the righteousness, you know, Isaiah is telling us that this righteousness that Jesus is bringing is a righteousness that only God can bring. We're capable of, of, of making things exciting. We're capable of, of having a, a, a big, exciting time. But in terms of a true work of grace taking place, we we are not capable of performing that. If we want that to happen, then we've got to go to the Lord for that. And the fact of the matter is, we really don't want that to happen unless the Lord first comes to us. This is what we learn about ourselves. You see how helpless we are, how destitute we are. But what does all this teach us about God? God. What is taking place out on that hillside? Jesus is coming down that hillside. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 62. He is the Messiah of the whole book of Isaiah. He's the Messiah of the whole book of of Zechariah. He's the Messiah of the entire Old Testament. In fact, he tells his disciples that the whole Bible speaks of him. And it does. And here he is. He's bringing salvation to his people. As he comes into Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred up. That's what our text tells us, the whole city. Sometimes we come to things like this and we say, well, that's hyperbole, you know. Uh, Certainly the whole city wasn't stirred up, just a lot of people were. I don't think there's hyperbole there. I think the whole city was stirred up, the entire city. But in a few days, the Messiah will be completely abandoned and he will hang by himself on a cross. What does this teach us about the Lord? It teaches us volumes about the Lord. We have it in our heads that, you know, if the Lord's going to bless us, then we're going to have to do this and do this and do this and do this. Is that the way it works? As long as we're following that line of thinking, we're never going to really understand what really is going on. You see, all of God's children are those, if they were left to their own devices, are those who would be yelling, crucify Him. Myself included. And the thing about it is the Messiah knows this. But does it stop him from coming down that hillside? He knew he would crucify him. Long before he ever came, he knew this. So why does he go with, why does he go through with it? See this takes us to the very heart of God. It's because he loves us. Why does he love us? I don't have any idea. I don't know the answer to that. I've tried to to answer that in, in terms of myself. Lord, why do you love me? I can't think of a single reason why he should love me. I half the time can't even think of a reason why my wife should love me, let alone him. That's grace. All we can do is receive this grace. We learn, we learn a lot about ourselves out here on this hillside, don't we? We would love to be entertained. We would love to, we, listen, we, we would all like to make more money. We'd like our bills to be taken care of. We'd like our diseases and sicknesses to go away. We'd like all these things to happen. It's really, oftentimes, I think that's what we would prefer most than just to be alone with the Lord. But look out on the hillside with me. I think I see him coming. Where is he headed? He's headed to the cross. But don't stop at the cross. Because next week we're going to be celebrating what takes place after the cross, which is what? It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. Yes, Jesus goes to the cross to take away the sins of his people. But that's not where he stays, is it? He's not on that cross any longer. He's at the right hand of the Father in session with unlimited authority and unlimited power. How much does Jesus love his people? They're a crown. We're a crown on his head. A king can't be a king without people, without subjects. We're the bride. How much does Jesus love his people? Look at the cross. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at these texts, as we learn so much about ourselves, Lord, it magnifies your grace. Oh, Lord, we recognize, oh, Lord, that for so much of the time, and so much of the time, Lord, we... We love the things that you give us more than we love you. And we confess that to you, O oh Lord. So much of the time, Lord, what we really want is heaven here, right here and right now. In our, in our own little way. But, O oh Lord, as we look to this text, we see Jesus coming down off that hillside and marching uh, towards his execution. We see Jesus meriting and procuring our salvation. And we see how much you love us, Lord. And we pray, O Lord, that that love would would permeate our hearts. And truly, O Lord, work a change in our hearts. Soften us, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.